This is the LexisNexis New York Legal News Podcast. Litigation news stories from recent issues of LexisNexis Mealy's Publications. Current and targeted legal news and litigation reports. Bank of America and bankrupt Italian dairy company Parmalat have agreed to settle their claims arising from a 2004 securities fraud lawsuit filed in New York federal court for a reported $100 million. According to a press release announcing the settlement, Bank of America has agreed to pay Parmalat and several of its entities $100 million to settle claims stemming from the action filed by Parmalat in the Southern District of New York in 2004, as well as several other claims filed in an Italian court. According to the press release, further terms of the settlement will not be made available until settlement documents are filed in the district court. The trustee for the consolidated liquidation proceedings of Bernard Madoff Investment Securities sued Madoff's wife on July 29th in an attempt to recover close to $45 million in funds he says Ruth Madoff received from her husband's involvement in the massive Ponzi scheme. The complaint was filed by trustee Irving Picard in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of New York and alleges that, quote, for decades Mrs. Madoff lived a life of splendor using the money of the company's customers. Regardless of whether or not Mrs. Madoff knew of the fraud her husband perpetrated at Bernard Madoff Investment Securities, during the past two- and six-year statutory periods, she received tens of millions of dollars from it, for which the firm received no corresponding benefit of value, and to which Mrs. Madoff had no good-faith basis to believe she was entitled. According to Picard, while Bernard Madoff's crimes have left many investors impoverished and some charities decimated, Mrs. Madoff remains a person of substantial means. He says the inequity between Mrs. Madoff's continuing financial advantages and the economic distress of Madoff's customers compels the trustee to bring this action. The Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals on July 27th declined to decide whether the affirmative defense to employer liability applies to sexual harassment and retaliation claims under the New York City Administrative Code and instead certified the question to the New York Court of Appeals. A woman sued a co-worker and her former employer, the New School, in the Southern District of New York, alleging sexual harassment and retaliation in violation of the New York City Human Rights Law, which is codified in part in the New York City Administrative Code Section 8-107. The New School argues that the affirmative defense to employer sexual harassment liability for claims brought under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 applies under the New York City Human Rights Law. The plaintiff claims that the defense is not applicable, but that even if it is, there is a genuine issue of material fact as to whether the new school has satisfied the requirements. Judge Lewis Kaplan found the new school liable, but saying his conclusion could not be free from doubt, certified the question to the Second Circuit. Rather than ruling on the matter, however, the Second Circuit certified the question to New York's High Court. Quote, first, this question has not yet been addressed by the New York Court of Appeals. Second, this is a question of considerable significance. As the district court noted, still quoting, employment discrimination cases are a substantial portion of the caseload for the district courts of this circuit. Because plaintiffs often assert claims under state and city anti-discrimination laws, a resolution of the vicarious liability standards and defenses applicable under those statutes is needed. 
Although a decision from our court is binding only within the federal courts of our circuit, our interpretation of New York City Administrative Code would undoubtedly have some impact on employment discrimination claims pending in state courts as well. End of quote. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Michael Lefkowitz. The Second Circuit has held that the Chubb Corporation's explanation that the fixed proportion of home and contents coverage is standard industry practice does not address a policyholder's assertion that annual increases were not based on current costs and values as required by the policy's express terms. The Circuit Court reversed and remanded a lower court's dismissal of the insured's breach of contract claim, but affirmed the dismissal of remaining claims. Fred Spagnola filed a putative class action against Chubb for breach of contract, violation of New York insurance law, unjust enrichment, and deceptive business practices. Spagnola alleged the homeowner's insurer improperly increased coverage and premiums without his consent and in excess of the consumer price index. The panel added that Chubb does not reveal the basis for its costs and values determination, but says only what the calculation is not based on. The Second Circuit has held that no term of an excess insurance policy demonstrates that recovery by the insurer in subrogation must be given over to the policyholder. The Second Circuit affirmed a lower court's finding that the insurance company has a priority claim to any recoveries that might be won from airlines and other third-party defendants in the ongoing tort litigation over the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center. The circuit court said it agreed with the district court that the application of recoveries clause is dedicated to determining the calculation of ultimate net loss when payments are received after the loss settlement has occurred. It has no effect to settle the contractual subrogation or the contracted priority of subrogation. A federal judge held July 27th that Consolidated Edison Company of New York and its subrogee insurers are entitled to collect almost $17.6 million from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey to cover the replacement of an electrical power substation that was destroyed as a result of the September 11th terrorist attacks. A federal judge held July 29th that although New York residents may access a website that offers users access to infringing works, the state long-arm statute does not confer jurisdiction over them. Royalty Network is the designated American administrator of music owned by non-party Saragama, a music recording company based in India. As the administrator, Royalty Network collects all royalties and fees derived from copyrights the Indian firm holds on its music. The defendants run the website Dishant.com, which is the self-proclaimed home to Indian music. In filing suit, Royalty Network alleged the website provides visitors with unauthorized access to music produced and owned by Saragama, representing copyright infringement. Seeking dismissal, the defendants responded by arguing that the district court lacks jurisdiction over them in that they're a Virginia-based company and Virginia-based individuals with no contacts in or with New York. According to Southern District of New York Judge Sidney Stein, corporate defendant Dishon.com has had no contact with the state of New York. What's more, because jurisdiction is lacking over the corporate defendant, the judge said the court also lacks jurisdiction over two individual co-defendants. The judge noted that even if royalty could support an inference that transactions with New York residents occurred, it would still be insufficient to support the necessary finding that the defendants purposefully and knowingly entered into those transactions or otherwise targeted New York for business. In a lawsuit filed 16 years ago, a family in which three of the children were injured by exposure to lead-based paint 
has reached a $1.6 million settlement with a real estate company that managed the property. Sources did not say what expenses or damages were covered by the settlement. In 1993, Gloria Velez sued South Nine Realty Corporation in Kings County Supreme Court, alleging her children suffered various injuries from lead paint exposure in the apartment that Velez rented from South Nine. Tests taken between May 1992 and December 1993 revealed elevated blood lead levels in the three children. A New York City Department of Health inspector found 22 areas in the apartment where there were lead paint violations. Plaintiff's experts testified during trial proceedings that the children had all lost between 7 and 10 IQ points as a result of lead exposure. Sources said the litigation involved numerous procedural delays and that the defendants had argued that children's injuries were the result of lead exposure at other premises. Meanwhile, according to a published report in the Utica Observer-Dispatch, a family and three different landlords reached a $1.16 million settlement to compensate for injuries caused by exposure to lead hazards. The parents of four children alleged they'd suffered cognitive deficits and impaired school performance as a result of exposure to lead-based paint in their home. Fourteen of 15 experts for the plaintiffs and the defense in the Fosamex multi-district litigation will be allowed to testify. Southern District of New York Judge John F. Keenan also will allow a plaintiff expert to testify that Fosamex does not have to be taken for more than three years to create a risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw. And because of the rarity of ONJ, the plaintiffs do not have to present epidemiological evidence. Plaintiffs allege Fosamax used to treat osteoporosis inhibits new bone growth. Fosamax users who have oral surgery develop ONJ because the drug prevents new bone growth, they claim. Defendant Merkin Company and the plaintiffs moved to exclude each other's expert witnesses. Judge Keenan found each expert qualified and found their opinions to be scientifically reliable, although he did partially grant Merck's motion to restrict some testimony by plaintiff experts. The Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals on July 9th ruled that a plan's three-year limitations period bars a claimant's action for wrongful denial of benefits under a group disability plan that was filed more than three years from the proof of loss. Patricia Burke worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers and was insured under the company's group disability plan that was administered by Hartford Life and Accident Insurance Company. Burke applied for long-term disability benefits in 2002, claiming she was unable to work due to knee pain. Hartford paid Burke benefits, and in March 2003, it requested proof of loss and a doctor's evaluation. In May 2003, Hartford terminated benefits, finding the weight of medical evidence did not support continued disability. Hartford upheld its decision on appeal in October 2003. Burke sued Hartford in the Southern District of New York in September 2006, seeking benefits under ERISA. The district court dismissed the action as time-barred, and Burke appealed. The appeals court said the plan's three-year limitations period applies. The plan bars a claimant from bringing an action more than three years after written proof of loss is required. Burke's claim was required to be filed by April 27, 2006, three years from the date proof of loss was due. Accordingly, the court said her filing on September 25, 2006 was late by almost five months. LexisNexis Podcasts, voted top legal-oriented podcast in a 2008 ABA Journal Blog 100, the annual reader survey of the best websites for lawyers, as chosen by the editors of the ABA Journal. If you'd like more information on these and other New York cases, visit LexisNexis.com slash Mealies, M-E-A-L-E-Y-S, or TotalLitigator.com.
LexisNexis Legal News New York is written by the editors of Mealy Publications, current and targeted legal news and litigation reports. The LexisNexis New York Legal News Podcast, copyright 2009 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis, total practice solutions. This is Steve Bursler. Thanks for listening.